Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I am so delighted tonight to be joined not only by author Larry Bloom, the author of Fierce Resistance, but Larry brought along his entire theater group so that we can dramatize <laughs> Fierce Resistance because this is quite the dramatic book. So before I introduce Larry, let me just give a little synopsis of the book. In the 1930s and 40s, Jewish men and women served as a fierce resistance fighting the British government that had mandated Palestine. These resistance fighters fought for a cause in which they truly believed, a free and independent Israel at peace. This novel salutes those fierce resistance fighters and their indomitable spirit. So I am so delighted to introduce author Larry Bloom. Hi, Larry. Hooray, Larry. Larry, where are you? There you are. He's in the center square. Yeah, there you are, Larry. I can't hear you. <laughs> Larry? He's muted. He's Can muted. you unmute him? I'm, I'm trying. Larry? How's that? Is that better? There, is. there we go. Okay. First of all, I would like to thank everybody for participating. I'm sorry we had a few stumbles uh, of a technical nature along the way, but I'm certainly glad to have all of my friends, uh, some I've known for many years and some I've recently met, but you're all wonderful and I thank you so much for all you do. Uh, we've all worked together on, on one production or one monologue together. Uh, I remember going back to the days when uh, I came into the group and Enid Brownstone welcomed me. And uh, so I'm so delighted that Enid is with our group today. And, uh, uh, you know, she made me feel welcome. And I, the first thing I did is I did a, a Groucho Marx uh, routine and I still remember it. And, uh, and uh, that was quite a number of years ago. Uh, and uh, so what I wanted to say is it's so great to have all of my friends who are actors and performers um, I hope you enjoy the book and I'm, I'm working on the next one already. I have some ideas. I'm going back to my days at the Xenia High School and as a new school teacher, uh, starting out with that. And uh, I'm working on uh, putting together my second novel because uh, Stephanie's a hard driver and she said, Larry, you know, you're not leaving here until I get another novel out of you. So, <laughs> so, uh, so thank you everybody. I really uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say in the readings tonight. And um, 
Stephanie, I'll, Thank I'll you. turn it back Thank to you. Thank you, Larry. Thank you so much. And since we have a huge room full of actors, um, actresses, theater buffs of all of all ages here, I want to introduce everybody. And I've asked them to please give um, either the favorite role that they have been in, because we are all aching to be back on a stage, that's for sure. So either their favorite role, or perhaps there's a dream role that they just can't wait until this pandemic is over so that they can be in that dream role. So can I start with Naomi? Oh, you're starting with me? Okay. I'm starting with you. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I've mostly done musical theater so, uh, but I'll give you two because I also did a little bit non-musical. Uh, Aldonza from Man of La Mancha. I love doing that. And I also was um, uh, Cousin Bella in Lost in Yonkers. And I love that role. Oh, great choices. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Enid Brownstone. What can I say? I never aspired to be an actress. But when I moved back to Queens many, many years ago, I met Belle Weiss. And uh, I think even before we became Belle's players, we were in another location and we were writing our own script. So I like to write. I have a graduate, graduate degree in library science. I've been a public library trustee. I'm a paper person. But when it comes to reading, and emoting, it starts with the children when they're babies and you start reading to them and dramatizing it. And um, it's, I'm so happy to be back with this, with Larry and friends. Thank you. Oh, thank, Ethan, you. thank you so much for being here with us tonight. That's just, Pleasure. and thank you. I, I, if you ever watch any of my shows or interviews, you know that I think that librarians are just this far away from God because you know, <laughs> or at least you know where to find it. So a great big thank you to librarians, you and all librarians out there. Thank you. <laughs> John Brandis. Hi, it's me. Uh, my favorite role, well, you know, uh, as, as I think about it, uh, I think everybody always remembers back to their first role and uh, that was uh, working with Larry. Uh, he cast me in my first role ever. That was working in uh, Fiddler on the Roof and I did Perchick. Uh, and I not only did Perchik, but I also did uh, the uh, the crazy Russian who uh, who in the uh, who in the tavern goes lie die 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 and he raises his voice mm -hmm. and while, while he's got that note up there, he controls not only uh, the tavern, uh, the orchestra, he controls the whole house until he starts to bring it back down again. Uh, that was that that was that was a special experience. Thank you, Larry, again. Thank you. Fabulous, thank you so much. Kathy Schimenti. Hello, how are you? Thank you so much for uh, having me participate in this. It's a pleasure. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, so thrilled. Thank you. Uh, okay, so favorite role uh, is probably Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl. Oh, good choice, good choice. Yeah. My absolute favorite. Um, as far as my favorite dream role, I want to continue directing oh. Theater by the Bay. <laughs> that is my favorite recurring dream role. Thank you. <laughs> and we are so thrilled to have you there. That's for sure. Thank Absolutely. you. Uh, Michael Schmenti. Hi, everybody. Good to see everyone. 
Um, my favorite role, of course, has to be from a Larry Bloom production. Uh, my favorite role was playing Moonface Martin in Larry's production of Anything Goes. That was an absolute uh, blast, an absolute blast. And it was a great opportunity. And uh, I want to thank Larry again for giving me that. It's a good thing he gave me the oh. So, uh, yes, that was that's probably one of my favorites. It was a lot of fun. And Kathy was Reno Sweeney in that production. It was a great show. Yep. Yeah, really great. I'm sorry I missed that. That sounds like. Oh, a- you're you are sorry you missed it. It was quite a quite a thing to see. <laughs> <laughs> David Knee. Hi all, um, David Knee. As you heard, uh, I uh, met Larry at uh, at uh, Bell's Players, and we've been uh, working together for a few years, and it's been fun. It's been great. My favorite roles have been um, uh, The Fool in King Lear in a college production uh, at Hofstra that uh, combined faculty and students. And that was like very satisfying. Um, late, more lately, that was years ago. More lately, my favorite roles have been perhaps when I played uh, in Death of a Salesman with Regina as my uh, uh, as my wife, uh, the <laughs> ill-fated salesman, and the long-suffering wife in Death of a Salesman. Those are my two favorite roles that come to mind. Um, okay, so uh, looking forward to today's uh, today's uh, re- recital of uh, Fierce Resistance, which I enjoyed immensely. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us today, uh, John Canning. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, everybody. Hello. It, it's a great pleasure to be participating. And, you know, Larry's directed me in a number of shows, and I've loved oh, all of them. I enjoyed being Vandergelder uh, and being on stage, uh, Lila, with you at the restaurant. And I enjoyed being Beauregard and uh, Gina Ann playing opposite you in your marvelous role as Mame. And, of course, being with, with Michael and Kathy in Anything Goes when I played Sir Evelyn. So they've all been a great joy and I'm delighted to be participating tonight. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us for this tonight. This is fabulous. Thank you. Uh, Mark Damon. I know it says Mark. He's with Regina. I guess it's Regina. It's you, Regina. Okay. Thank you. I want to first introduce myself by telling you all that I have a severe hearing problem. So I began Bell's Players about 23, 24 years ago uh, with Bell. And I didn't have a hearing aid then, but as I've aged, it has gotten severe. So if I don't respond, you'll understand why. Uh, My favorite role is from a play that Naomi mentioned today is the grandmother in Lost in Yonkers. And I've done that. Yes, hi, Naya. We, we have something in common. Yeah. I have done that part, not memorized it, read it, uh, several times for performances we have given over the years. And there have been a number of times in 24 years. And I always come back to that because I feel very comfortable with it. I had seen someone who was in our group years ago who had done that role first. And I was so impressed with how she did it. I, Enid might have remembered her. I, I think she, 
was in uh, Eileen, I think, I'm not sure. She lived in Jamaica Estates and uh, she was magnificent. And I happened to have a cousin living near this person who gave me a little bit of her personal background privately. So I could understand how it came how she portrayed that grandmother. Uh, and it's been an honor to be in the group all these years and to have Larry leading us once again. And he's our best friend and best pal and best director. And I'm looking forward to tonight and perhaps other times, you never know. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you for so listening. Um, Ed Cushman. Ed Cushman is not on the call. He couldn't. He oh, couldn't come on. Ed, Ed couldn't come on tonight. Oh, I see him right here. No? Oh, oh, I, I was oh, oh, good, Ed. Here he is. All right. I'm sorry, Ed. Anyway, apart from my questionable talents, I had the pleasure of uh, being part of the Theater by the Bay which Larry founded and directed quite a few shows and really gave it an illustrious place in the status of community theater. Larry uh, certainly enhanced a lot of people in their roles. I had the pleasure of being the uh, boss in a pajama game and the mayor in uh, that illustrious, great show, music man. So altogether, I had the joy of participating in these shows with quite a few people. And I'm glad to see some of my fellow beings on the stage uh, here in this group. And Larry, many thanks for giving me the opportunity to join with you in doing this reading of Fierce Resistance. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, Joseph Swigert. Hello, Stephanie and everyone. Um, my favorite roles are comedic roles. Um, I've been in uh, Guys and Dolls. I played Harry the Horse. Mm -hmm. And uh, South Pacific, I played Luther Billis. And um, in the Marx Brothers film, that was a play first. I, I played a, a faker in uh, Room Service. That, that those are my favorite roles, comedic girls. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. How about Jean Ann? Jean, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just oh. unmuted myself. Hi, guys. Uh, I've had uh, quite a few roles, and uh, these folks know that I've, I've really, with a plum, made my own costumes for most of them and just enjoyed every last one of them. Mame, Dolly, Levi, Mama Rose, Annie, Manny gets the gun. My favorite has to be because I want to pay homage to uh, the great Larry Bloom. Uh, probably my favorite was Mame where he played my love interest, uh, Horace Vanderbilder. So uh, I do I have a dream role? Yeah, I mean, I think all of them are a dream role until I get to play them and then I have to learn all the songs and the dialogue and it's scary as heck but uh i enjoyed my time on on stage and i thank you very much for inviting me thank you but you know keep in mind horace vandergelder is uh hello dolly not mame oh i'm sorry you're right it's hello dolly i just wanted to see if you were listening john oh on every word <laughs> <laughs> but i played opposite you in mame and you were fabulous as, oh, you did thank as you mame. 
So were you until you fell up that mountain. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I played Ito in Maine once. Did you? Oh. How about Lila Edelkind? Do we have you yet? Hi, uh, Lila Edelkind. Um, I really am indebted to Larry because he uh, was so kind and uh, casting me. Um, first in the ensemble, starting with Fiddler on the Roof and, and the reviews. Um, but Larry gave me the thrill of, of my uh, career by casting me as Adelaide. I said only uh, Larry would have the guts to make an Alta Caca version um, <laughs> to give that. But um, it was just a joy to, to have that role, to play opposite John um, I got to play uh, the gun mall opposite Moonface, uh, which was a, a great, a great, great time. Um, and I also had the thrill of being both in a Wizard of Oz playing um, Glinda um, for Larry and then in a children's theater production. And it was a joy to perform for children's audiences, family audiences. Fantastic. So I, I thank you, Larry, for giving me the courage and the story. Thank you. Uh, and Lala, you were marvelous. Hello, oh. oh, John. You were my Nathan. Oh, what a joy. A great joy. <laughs> How are you, John? Jim Jaggy. Hello, hello, sweetheart. How are you? It's great to see you again, yes, Nice to see you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you so uh, much. How about you? Jim Jaggy. Hanging in. Great, great. Jim Jaggy, hello? Yes. Uh, there you are. Well, I just really started out in theater a couple of years ago singing opera to Our Lady of Mercy. Uh -huh. But my favorite roles, one of my favorite roles, were the Ruben Mechanicals in the Midsummer Night's Dream. Why do you say maybe I might end up playing Nick Bottom? <laughs> Very nice. I'm Very the nice. Shakespearean actor of the group. Okay. Very good. Good to remember. Uh, is Lee Newman here? Yeah, it's me. Okay. Here. Where are you? I'm here. I can't see you. Yes. Oh, there. Right here. I see her. She's I'm here. There you are. Do you have a favorite role you want to share with us? I'm, I'm over here. Yeah. Do you have a favorite, a favorite role? role? Your favorite role that you've been in? Do I have a favorite role? Uh... Probably yes. I have a, a favorite role when I played the uh, the secretary in Maine in uh, in Gypsy rather, and I had a wonderful scene with Jean Ann, and that was my favorite role. But I've been working with Larry for many many years uh, in uh, Reform Temple and uh, then in Bay Terrace and for many years. So I've done a lot of shows with him, and but that was really my favorite. I've done. Uh, before I did musicals, I was doing uh, straight shows as well. I worked with uh, Little Theater Forest Hills. Okay, terrific. Uh, Elizabeth Grumley. Hello, happy to be here. Um, the two roles that come to mind for me are uh, two different roles for two different reasons. One is uh, the Wicked Witch of the West because I usually don't play evil characters. So that was really, really fun to do. Um, and the other one I thought of was Bet from Oliver, which I did with Larry. And it, I had so much fun. And it was one of the very first shows I did moving to New York um, from the Chicago area. So I felt really a really warm, kind welcome from everybody there. So 
yeah, it was one of the best. Thank you so much. What is, may I ask, what is the lady's name? Hi. What is that like? Her name? Stephanie. Elizabeth. Okay, thank you. Yes. Elizabeth. Did we introduce everybody? Did I get everyone? I think we did. Okay. Yes. Um, Ed, did I miss you? I just saw you wave your arm. Ed? Yes, I'm here. Yes. Can you tell us your favorite role? I don't know. I think that was the butler in uh, Dover Road. Fantastic. Uh, Johnny Culver did it in Forest Hills about a year ago. Okay. Terrific. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining me. I know that every one of you is just counting the days until we can do this on a stage instead of doing this all in Zoom. But I'm thrilled that we're here and we're going to be reading from Fierce Resistance. So while each person is reading, uh, if you could, um, you know, just turn off your volume or mute yourself would be great just so we can hear everyone. I know our first reader is going to be Kathy, who is going to be starting us off with the book forward and getting us into the action. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much for being here. And away you go. In the 1930s and 1940s, Jewish men and women served as a fierce resistance fighting the British government that had mandated Palestine. These resistance fighters fought for a cause in which they truly believed, a free and independent Israel at peace. This novel salutes those fierce resistance fighters and their indomitable spirit. It was now or never, Yitzi Gamel decided. The satchel he carried was loaded with dynamite, fuses, and gunpowder. At 0200, he and his buddy Avram sneaked down to the beach in Batyam and in the dark surprised two British sentries on routine, routine patrol. The sentries holstered revolvers were no match for the lightning quick speed for the resistance fighters, hidden baggers which were used to quickly stab and slice up the two sentries. The fighters then went about their work, setting up the dynamite, laying out the fuses and connecting them. It was tedious, nerve-wracking work done in the dim moonlight. By 0300, they detonated their charges. This late night raid and attack in March 1937, resulting in the deaths of two Brits, was blamed on the fledgling resistance organization, the Ergun. The incident was listed the next day in the next day's newspaper as the Arab Revolt. Eight months later in November, the Ergun struck again, and this time in Jerusalem. 10 Arab citizens were killed. The pace of the attacks quickened after this latest action. Multiple attacks against Arab citizens and British policemen were carried out by Ergun resistance fighters for two months in April, with the resulting loss of three lives. May saw no let up in Ergun activity when a policeman was killed in an attack on a bus on Hebron Road in Jerusalem. And three people were shot and fatally wounded in Haifa. Multiple attacks against Palestinian citizens were carried out by Ergun freedom fighters the following month. Newspapers noticed, noted that some of the most heinous attacks since this campaign started were the ones that were committed against youngsters 
in an Arab market in Haifa. It was noted that most of the attacks were bomb attacks with the occasional use of guns. In the neighborhoods and side streets of Jaffa and Tel Aviv, Itzab Gemel was a local hero fighting for the resistance. He wasn't always such a hero and life certainly was not always easy, he recalled. His parents, Otto and Hannah, had been living with their three children in two rooms in Glukhov near Kiev. News of the Russian Revolution and Civil War and the pogroms they heard about taking place in Poland, Romania, and Lithuania had convinced them that for their own safety, it was time to leave their homeland and immigrate to Palestine. They boarded the ship SS Ruslan, arriving in the port of Jaffa on the 19th of December, 1919, part of the third wave of newcomers to make Aliyah. Life was different for him here. When he first arrived, he was a newcomer adjusting to learning a new language and meeting and making new friends in school. Everyone called him Yitzi. After spending half his day in school, he tended the crops in a small plot of land that was assigned to his family by the Newcomers Farmers Collective. Tonight, like the other nights this past week or so, he had the same dream. It was his Papa Otto, Mama Hannah, his brother Yaakov, and sister Hadassah that he dreamt about. Hazily, it seemed to him like it was happening right now, but clearly it was in the past about the time that they boarded the ship to make Aaliyah. It was a cold night. Papa was dressed in a heavy coat and boots carrying two tattered suitcases. Mama was similarly dressed and they were walking up a ship's gangplank. Itzi's little sister Hadassah, age six, whom they called Dasi, was crying. It looked like Mama was doing everything she could to keep Dasi quiet while she walked her up the gangplank to board. His younger brother, Yaakov, age eight, was carrying an old suitcase that was far too heavy for him. But where was he in the dream? He could sense a rising panic and started to yell out, Papa, Papa. Then he would wake up. The memories from the past and his youth all revolved around his Papa. The family, family moved and settled in Tel Aviv. Two years after making Aliyah, Otto, working in a jewelry wholesaler, was killed in a car accident in downtown Tel Aviv. At the funeral and the shiva, Yitzi cried for his papa for what seemed like hours on end. He knew that he was crying for himself as well. For he recalled the many ways he was like his papa or tried to emulate him. Yitzi was built like him, tall and skinny, had an oily complexion and some pimples and he had a great smile and a sense of humor. He would crack jokes at himself and found that he easily made new friends in school. Yitzi's, Yitzi's bubby, Rebecca, passed away in Palestine soon after she and her husband, Moses, had immigrated to Palestine, which was two years after Otto and Hannah and the family had made the same journey. Over these years, Zeta truly became part of the extended family. It was Zeta who helped Yitzi to learn and practice his prayers. And it was Zeta who threw fly balls when his grandson Yitzi wanted to practice ball. Even though he knew 
his Zeta wouldn't live forever. Yitzi was shocked and speechless when the family was called by the hospital on a Thursday afternoon and told the news that Zeta had suffered a heart attack. Hannah took a taxi cab to the hospital and was there with her father when he passed away. That just happened last year. It was a very sad time in the Gamel house. Someone so close and dear to everyone in the family had been taken. It seemed so unfair. Itzy seemed so sad, his mama noticed. He felt that he wanted to scream at the heavens and ask why. It was evident that this young man had known a lot of grief in his life at a young age, but there were happy moments too. Itzy's bar mitzvah was a reason to celebrate. Hannah had arranged for a beautiful and meaningful floral service and small kiddish afterwards, one Shabbat morning, the 1st of September. And the high school years were a time of friendships, first love, and then the path to a meaningful career. Yitzi was outgoing and had many friends. People found that he was easy to talk to and in any group, he stood out. He was level-headed and any situation he tried to see the other person's point of view. It was early in his freshman year at a pep rally when Yitzi met Susie Gershwitz. She was one of the rally organizers. Small, petite, with lots of energy, a big smile, a quick brain, and with the mouth to match. Yitzi smiled first, extending his hand and said, Hi, I'm Yitzi Gamel. Hi, I'm Susie Gershwitz, she replied, shaking Yitzi's hand ever so gently. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens. Exactly, exactly. Our next reader is Karen. Is Karen, did Karen make it on here? I don't think so. No. I just wanted to check in case it was a different name. Michael, would you take it from there on page eight? Okay. Do you want to move in? All right. I'm going to, I think I'm going to read out of the book. <laughs> a purchased copy. Awesome. Okay, page eight. Am I doing Okay. No, you start on eight, you said, right? We'll skip carry pages? Yep. Yes. Okay, page eight. A bus arrived at 6 a.m. 25 young recruits, including Yitzi, and two section leaders boarded the bus bound for a large kibitz in Haifa that the Ergun was using for training and orientation. After the one hour trip, the recruits exited the bus. They then lined up alphabetically by last name. It was assumed that these recruits would be assigned to Hayil Kravi, the combat board. The next four hours were spent on formations, marching and drill exercises. Lunch was followed by map reading and an address by Chaim Ovitz, an Irgun section leader. As twilight descended on the field, the combat corps were practicing their drill exercises and maneuvers in the darkness. Six o'clock saw a lot of weary recruits board the bus to return home. This mission was deemed a success and reported to the Irvine District Commander. There would be many more missions for the combat corps. Itzy was happy to see some action, but he realized after the drill that he was very sore and out of shape. Like Yitzi, most of those who worked for the resistance held regular jobs and worked for the Irvine on a part-time basis. Time seemed to move at a snail's pace for Yitzi. 
It was almost a year later. He found that he was spending three to four evenings each week in the school library. Often another student would have to wake him up from dozing while he was supposed to be reading. He often took notes at night after class. The following day, the notes he wrote seemed like gibberish. He was always tired. There were too many courses and laws and tests. He felt that his vision seemed to be getting worse from all the reading that he was doing. It wasn't just the classes as much as it was the required reading that he had to complete for each course. So far, he had completed his coursework and reading for constitutional and administrative law with a grade of B minus, had completed the English law process with a grade of B, and had completed the fundamentals of a legal practice with a grade of B minus. He knew that the most formidable courses, in other words, the ones in which he had the most interest, namely criminal law and contract law, was still to be taken in the upcoming term. He asked about the best way to study for the law classes and was told by a friend that study groups are the best way. <coughs> I happen to know that the Tuesday-Thursday law study group has an opening, his friend Albert indicated. As Yitzi Sue found out, joining a study group, especially an existing one, was not as easy as it would seem to be. For in the span of three weeks, he had called three times, had written multiple notes, and had even walked over to the student union and tacked up a note on the message board about the law class study group, but to no avail. A student named M. Baum was proving impossible to reach, either by written note or repeated phone calls. It was discouraging. At 11 p.m. on Thursday evening, Yitzi thought he would try calling once more before going to sleep. A sleepy-sounding young lady answered the phone on the second ring. Hello, she said. Hi, I'm Itza Gamal, Yitzi said. Oh, but my friends call me Yitzi. I've been trying to reach you. Yes, hi, I know. I'm Miriam Goldbaum. I I'm sorry. I know you tried to reach me these past few weeks, but had no luck. I've been out of town taking care of my mother, she added. He sounds nice, he thought. If I understand your bulletin board posts, you want to join our Tuesday, Thursday legal study group. Is that right? Miriam asked. Uh, yes, that's right, Itzak answered. Ask like a true lawyer, he added jokingly. Miriam didn't answer him. Maybe she didn't hear me, I, he thought, and let it drop. Well, we do have the opening in our legal study group, Miriam said. Oh, good. I'll take it. We meet every Tuesday and Thursday at six o'clock in conference room A in the library building, she said. Bring your textbooks and notepaper and a pen. Brief and to the point, and that's that, he thought. At least I got into the study group. The next day was Thursday. Yitzi was looking forward to meeting Miriam and the other students in the study group. At 5.30 the next evening, Yitzi crossed the campus and arrived at the door to the conference room A shortly before six o'clock. Study group students drifted in by 6.15, and Miriam was one of the last students to arrive, Yitzi noticed. She was short and petite with long black hair flowing down her back. He was nearsighted and spoke with a soft voice. But what you immediately noticed was her smile. She had a way of putting others at ease and a wonderful smile that seemed to brighten up the room and everyone in it. But not now. Miri felt the weight of everything going on in her life and felt that she needed to be the one to be cheered up. Study session went well. And Yitzi did well, participating fully. 
After the session, Miri asked Yitzi to join her for a cup of coffee in the student union cafe. Everyone always said that Miri was a human dynamo. I'm usually energetic, she told Yitzi as they were sipping their coffees. I'm usually filled with a lot of energy, great at organizing a meeting or an event, and I'm always the most enthusiastic person in the room, she added. But not lately, because my mother's been really ill. It was unexpected, she added. Next reader. Is Donald here? No, I'm going to read Donald's part. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Larry. Okay, so uh, it's on pages 11 and 12 in the book. So let me just turn to that and I'll, I'll get started. All right. I am okay. She said, my mother's illness really upset me. I'm sorry to burden you with my sad story, Yitzi. Muri reached her hand out and squeezed Yitzi's hand. I'm sorry about your mother. How is she feeling? Uh, he asked her as he saw the tears welling up in Muri's eyes. It must be serious, he thought. Miri took a deep breath and said, my mother has cancer and it's terminal. And then she cried. Yitzi gave her a hug and his handkerchief. A few minutes passed while Miri collected herself. Yitzi got her a glass of cold water. It was clear that Miri wanted to talk about um, about uh, about her mother and share feelings, her feelings with Yitzi. She said almost wistfully, I'm an only child. What about your father? My father hasn't, hasn't been in the picture for many years. He was abusive to my mother, Devorah, and liked his alcohol, she said. I'm sorry to hear this. The situation got unbearable. When you say it got unbearable, what do you mean? My father smacked my mother with his hand. Smacked her? What happened then? My mother and I moved out of our apartment and moved in with my booby, my grandma, Rebecca. And how are things? Well, there's been peace and quiet and happiness ever since, but that's all changed with my mother's cancer. I imagine it's been tough for you. Yes, it's been tough, especially on mama. It's the, it's the radiation treatment she's been getting that, that's been the hardest, Muri added. We deal with it. Everyone who knew Muri and her family saw that once the family settled in with Bubby, Things got improved. They were there for each other and they would handle whatever came their way with courage and optimism. Mary's mood improved. She was her old buoyant self. A month later, after one of the most lively study sessions 
that Mary could remember, Yitzi and Mary stopped in the student cafeteria for a cup of coffee. This had quickly become one of the rituals they both look forward to, sharing coffee in a spirited discussion with some of the other uh, session group members. Tonight's session was no exception. The discussion was organized by Mary. The subject was tort law negligence and the elements of a negligence case, duty, breach of duty, and causation and damages. Each student, student took uh, an element of tort law, explained what it meant, and gave an example. I'm very impressed with the work you did today uh, to put this together, Gitsy he said to Miri. He hung around after the session ended, smiling, but not saying anything. It was obvious that, that he had something on his mind. Gitsy, do you have something you want to say to me? Miri asked. She had secretly been wanting Yitzi to ask her uh, out the first time they met in the cafeteria. He had been so kind and gentle and solicitous when she told him about her mother. But Yitzi didn't say anything. He just let this opportunity go by. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. I'm so glad Thank you came you. for us. Thank All right. you. Jim, you <clears throat> Yes. Yes, do you hear me? I can hear you yes. just fine. All right. Like most of Mary's friends, he didn't dwell on Mary's mother's condition anymore, and she was just as glad that they didn't because her mother's health and condition were declining faster and faster. It was now just a matter of time, Mary thought. Her mother passed away two weeks later. What few knew that Lizzie and Mary had gone out alone three times and found that they really had enjoyed each other's company. A simple funeral was held with Rabbi Auslander of Temple Torah officiating. Deborah was buried in a plane in box. They all got to the funeral and the Sheba. Yitzi was there for Mary every step of this sad journey. It gave her comfort and support and proved to be a true mensch. Also, he helped Mary by coordinating the arrangements with the rabbi. After the 30-day period of mourning had passed, Yitzi and Mary surprised everyone by announcing their engagement and planned wedding in May. During this hectic time, Yitzi stayed as involved as he ever did in the work of the Irgun. A new branch of the Irgun had been formed in Jerusalem, and he was deeply involved. Mary and Yitzi were now in love more than they were when they first met. Their marriage under the Shabbat in May by Rabbi Osan Lewis, but family and friends was beautiful. Yitzi completed his studies in law and received his bachelor's degree and his JD degree and opened his legal practice on Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem the following year before the high holidays. He also knew that it was time for him to use his given name all the time. So from now on, family, friends, and business associates, he was known as Itzhak Gamel. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm, going, and I'm going to leave the reading in a moment. So uh, good luck, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you. Sometimes late at night in the quiet of his law office on Ben Yehuda Street in, in downtown Jerusalem, Itzhak Gamel would take a break from his paperwork. He looked at the clock on his desk, 
It was 1.30 a.m., 5th of April, 1946. He curled up on the two-seat client couch and closed his eyes. It was a half an hour later, Itzhak went into the bathroom and splashed his face with cold water. And again, he checked his watch, a little after two. It was late enough, he thought, as he returned back to his desk, put some casework in his briefcase and left the building. There was always parking behind the office building. And after this long day, Itzhak was happy to get inside his 40 Ford coupe and head home. His wife, Miriam, was fast asleep, so he quietly changed. It seemed like he had just gotten into bed and pulled the covers up when the alarm rang on the nightstand, 5.45 a.m. Itzhak showered and dressed, a quick toast and jam, and he headed to his car for the drive over to the office. In his mind, he reviewed his appointment calendar for the day. Since his practice was local practice, most of the cases he would see would be general law cases, a complicated will to work through, a tenant-landlord dispute, and a few telephone calls to be placed before the end of the day and his work with resistance. Itzhak knew that his cell, the Ben Yehuda fighters, would meet promptly at 6 p.m., whether he was there to start it or not. It was 5.15. He was running late. He hurried quickly to get to the tobacco warehouse. Most days, that was the routine. He would leave his car parked behind the office building, take the stairs from his second floor office, walk out the door and over to the bus stop, two blocks away. The bus ride was quick. No one paid much attention to him as they were headed home from work. He tried not to look anybody in the eye. The less they focused on him, the better, he thought. It was a beat-up old wood door that led to the room in the back. The ceiling was low. You had to duck under exposed beams and rusted nails before you made it inside. Hello, Itzhak. It was Ari. He always came a little early. He liked to talk to the others, hearing what they had to say, like many of hearing what he had to say. Like many of the others, he worked in the fields after class, and then, like the others, he would get on the bus or hitch a ride to the warehouse. Itzhak looked around the room. Crates and barrels were scattered. The musty smell of stale tobacco hung in the air. Straight-back cane chairs were set up in rows of four and five. Men were coming in, greeting each other. Most of them were older. A few of them seemed to be around 22 or so. He could tell by their clothes, some were farmers. Some were students straight from school. And then there were a few dressed in their business suits. It was a little after six now. Itzhak strode into the room and silently sat down facing the others. Thank That's you. It. Thank you so much. Um, do we have David Nee? Yes, we do. Terrific. Can you take it from there, right at the bottom of 16? <clears throat> okay. Um, he could tell by their clothes, some were farmers, some were students straight from school. And then there were a few dressed in their business suits. It was a little after six now. It's hooks strode into the room and silently sat down facing the others. 
He was small in stature, couldn't have been taller than six foot two or so. You could tell by looking at him that he was a learned man, a scholar. At first glance, he looked to be in his mid forties. He was soft spoken. And when he spoke, you had to lean in to hear him. His suit was rumpled. His gray hair was windblown and there was a deep, there were deep creases in his face, probably from worries over money. Let's get started. We have a lot to talk about, he said. Itzhak looked around the room at the dozen or so seated there. Just about everyone was nodding in agreement and then just like every other time, as if by clockwork, the men stopped talking grabbed chairs, arranged them in a semicircle facing Yitzhak and sat waiting expectantly. The first half hour was always devoted to status updates. To some, some of the men seated, this talk seemed to drone on and on. How many men were there on security patrol? How many new recruit, recruits and so on? Then, Benjamin, Itzhak's voice roused Benjamin Yosef out of his daydream. Uh, uh, yes, sorry, Benjamin replied. Itzhak glared at him for a moment and said, as one of our younger members, what are your thoughts, he asked. Benjamin looked around the room. Everyone had turned to look at him. Most of the younger men gave him a smile or at least an understanding look. The older men looked at him with disdain. <clears throat> talk, talk, I'm so sick and tired of talk, Benjamin said, and he sat down. Itzhak stopped, walked over to where Benjamin was seated and in a very soft, measured voice said, you have something to say, Ben, that's why we meet. Let the others know how you feel. Forget it. I have nothing important to say. Just more talk, that's all, he replied. Daniel wouldn't let it go. He stood up, spun around to face Benjamin and said, Stop pretending, Benji. Tell, tell them, tell them uh, what's been on your mind uh, for so long. You know you've got friends here. There was murmuring amongst the others in the room until it's across to the center of the room and said, we've given you every opportunity to speak, Ben, at every meeting. Benjamin stood up and cut Itzhak off. I know, Itzhak, I know what you're going to say, that I just sit in these meetings and don't say anything. Maybe I've been waiting and hoping and then as if he were making an important speech to a bunch of professors, Benjamin walked in the center of the room, put his hand up to gain everyone's attention and said, Itzhak, my fellow members of the resistance, I am sick and tired of coming to every meeting and hearing talk. We have talked and talked and talked and talked. We have heard each other's bitter feelings 
but not just once. Every time we come, we hear about the cruelty of the Nazis, the evils of the British. Was that why we came together to talk, he asked. Everybody seemed to respond all at once. Then one of the newer members, Yanko, said, you talk about everybody else's bitter feelings, but how about yours? Benjamin could feel his face turning crimson with anger. He waited for a few moments to collect his composure and then said, let me finish what I started. It seems to me that we'll continue to meet here each week and do nothing but talk. When do we get the British occupiers out of Palestine? Will we get them out uh, of our land by talk? We should be acting. Now, the only way the British will remove uh, will be with our fists and our guns, not by someone's bitter feelings left over from the war. It didn't take long for Itzhak to respond. You're such a child. Ben, you think it's so simple. We just fire pistols and the British leave. Is that what you think, he asked. No, that's not what I mean, Benjamin replied as loudly and forcefully as he could. Itzhak stopped and seemed to glare at Benjamin. You don't understand me, Itzhak, Benjamin said. He added, we planned very carefully. We attacked something like the supply fortress at Ramat Gan. If we're prepared, we can easily outmaneuver them. Everyone stopped and waited to see what Itzhak would do. Nothing dramatic took place. Instead, Itzhak turned and slowly walked to the front of the room and said, no, forget that idea, Benjamin. That supply fortress is well guarded. Almost one quarter of all British arms are kept there. Our men don't have the training to defeat the British and capture their arms. Don't forget, we're only one of many cells. Maybe in a few months, we'll be ready for action on a smaller scale. We must build up our strength and plan carefully before we can do something so bold as attack a fortress. To go into an action like that now would mean nothing short of a massacre. And what of our families, Itzhak? Don't you think our families deserve a better life? better treatment than they've been getting, living in a land occupied by foreigners, Benjamin asked. I think that's about it. All right, thank you. Uh, Regina, you can yes. start right there. Okay, now look, Ben Itzhak replied, I'm thinking of our families, what I say we have to wait. We're not trained fighters. And it isn't just ourselves. We have to coordinate with the others. If we rush into action blindly, it's going to mean lots of us in a battle. We're not prepared to fight. You talk like a coward, Benjamin replied. Are you afraid to die? Afraid? It isn't that simple, Itzhak answered. There are so many factors that have to be considered. You're not being realistic, Ben. I'm in a Zoom rehearsal. The growing anger. 
that each man exhibited reached the point where Itzhak and Benjamin just stood there silently glaring at each other for a few minutes. It was clear that the dialogue wasn't over. Benjamin crossed to the back of the room and stood there, waiting to see what would happen next. He didn't have to wait long. Within a few minutes, most everyone turned their chairs completely around so they were facing him. Benjamin said, I say to each of you sitting here and listening to me that the longer we wait to take arms against the occupation government, the less our chances will be to defeat them and see the free state. He saw, he saw eyes opening widely and they were listening. Every day the British propaganda fills the mind of another Jew, turning him against us and wooing him to their point of view. Every day we wait, more British soldiers enter our land. Benjamin noted, the resistance counterattack must begin now if there is ever to be a free state, he added. Much murmuring and shouts from the men sitting there convinced him what he said was, was what most were thinking, but hadn't expressed their feelings verbally. Benjamin sat down, feeling a mix of a euphoria and dread. He knew that he had to take a stand, and now he had. Itzhak ran over to where Benjamin was sitting, pointed his finger at him, actually waving it at him in a disapproving way, saying, you're living in a dream world, Ben. You're a child who has been given a weapon and your fingers itch. They itch for action. You're anxious and pull that trigger. You do and face a war which we're not ready to fight. Grow up. Grow up? What the hell does that mean? Benjamin asked. Itzhak seemed to get angrier than he had been. He inched in closer to Benjamin's face saying, just what I said, grow up. And realize that when the time is right, we'll be there. I want the British out of our land as much as you do. And so does everyone else there. Here. But I can't see taking our lives now. And then, almost as an afterthought, as he sat down on his chair, Itzhak said, Heaven help you if you try to start this on your own. You'll be in a grave at a very early age. Benjamin stood up. He looked at no one in particular, but knew that he had to get out. His legs seemed to carry him out without even thinking about it. Once he got out and was back in the street, it was night. Benjamin knew he had to walk and think. What now? He knew he couldn't let it go. He just knew. In the tobacco warehouse a few minutes later, Itzhak wrapped up the meeting with a good night and shalom. 
a few stayed a little longer just to chat. Itzhak walked around the room, pulling the strings to turn off the overhead lights. As he usually did after the meeting broke, he headed down to the bus bus stop to go to his office. On the short walk to the bus stop and then on the bus, Itzhak had a chance to think about the meeting. Clearly, he was worried that youthful impatience might spiral his plans for the cell out of control. That's my part. Fabulous, fabulous job, thank you. Um, Oh, go on, I forgot. That was, there was not much that he could do, he thought, as he walked to his car and drove home. On the 20 minute drive home for dinner with Miriam, Itzhak thought about his involvement with a resistance. When his family first arrived in Jerusalem, his Hebrew was poor. Along with many others, he went to a school for newcomers for part of the day. And then in the afternoon, he worked in the fields. A lot of the planting of the crop and harvesting of the wheat was done by hand. Itzhak didn't bring home much money, but whatever he brought, he gave to his mother. Papa didn't work. He sat in the front room and either read or listened to music on the radio or napped. He had been a skilled carpenter, but there were no jobs. It was in the fields where Itzhak met Avram. They called him Avi. Like so many of the other newcomers, Itzhak learned about the struggle for a free Palestine from his friends in school. He would hear them talk about the resistance movement, the fight for a homeland for the Jews. Avi knew a lot and patiently answered Itzhak's questions. He said to Itzhak, come down to a meeting. We meet weekly, more when we need to. We need good men like you. Itzhak remembered that first meeting. Everyone seemed so friendly. Some older men, some his age, They asked him to stand up and tell them who he was. He did. They clapped and shook his head and patted him on the back and let him know that he was welcome. In the meeting, the men talked about the newly organized resistance group called Haganah. One of his new friends, Shmuel, explained to Itzhak and the others at one of their regular Tuesday night meetings that local Arab gangs had been attacking Jews. Now look, Shmuel said, the Brits are running our government, but they're not doing anything to protect us. That's Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. That's Fantastic it. job to of our readers. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing!